St Matthew's this morning. The God we worship is not a dumb God, but a speaking God. And his word to us is mighty and powerful. His word to us is completely trustworthy. So as we begin today, we're going to sing, Lord, your almighty word. Please stand and join our singers as we sing together. yourself known by your word in the Lord Jesus Christ and for the hope we have in him. As we gather, help us to express our thanks and praise as we listen to your word, as we sing of your glory, as we pray to you and as we seek to encourage one another. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. Well, a warm welcome again uh, to those of you who are with us here in the building and those of you who are joining us online. It's uh, wonderful to be gathering together in the name of Jesus today. Uh, for those of you who are guests, uh, we love having guests, so I hope you've already had a, a warm welcome uh, from somebody. Um, we really trust that your time with us you'll find is both worthwhile and enjoyable. Uh, my name is Andrew Graham. I'm one of the ministers here. Welcome. Uh, today we begin a, a new series that we're calling Confronting Christianity. It's a series which will continue over the next six weeks where we're looking at contemporary questions that are being posed to Christians. And we're starting today with, are we better off without religion? Now, Scott Petty will be helping us think biblically about a question like that uh, when he speaks a little later in the service. And we'll also have an opportunity this morning to, um, to hear from our long-awaited new children's minister, uh, Jamie Lee Post, 
She's been really welcomed by the staff this week. It's been great to have her here, and I'm sure you'll enjoy meeting her as Bruce interviews her in a short time. Uh, I'll also let you know, particularly for the, the sake of those who are, who are at home, that we're sharing together in the Lord's Supper. So at home, if you don't have some bread and a little cup ready, uh, it'd be good to organise that before we get to then. But right now, we're going to say together what it is that we believe about God, about his greatness, about his love for us in this rich statement from the Bible, from Colossians 1. So please join me as we recite this together. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. Rhonda's going to come forward now and lead us in prayer. join me in praying. Heavenly Father, as we come before you together in prayer, help us to be still in our minds, our concerns and our hearts. Lord, we are sorry for the times we've ignored you and diminished you in our lives. For the times when we've been prideful and hurtful, forgive us, cleanse us and transform us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. Almighty and everlasting Lord, in this broken and divided world, we grieve for the continuing violence across Ukraine. We pray for a de-escalation in the hostilities. We pray that there would be an appetite to find meaningful solutions. We earnestly pray that people affected would find relief, aid and shelter I pray that the Christians there might shine, that they might be people of hope, and that many would come to know you through these difficult circumstances. We thank you for the release of grain exports from the Black Sea, and we pray that this will benefit many in need across the world, especially those in famine. We pray that this aid might get to them. With the new wave of COVID infections, Lord, we pray for your mercy, we pray that you would protect the thousands who work in healthcare, in hospitals, in aged care services, the casual workers, single parents, and those with compromised immunity. Father, help us to bear this season well, with acceptance of our limitations and with patience in the ongoing circumstances that change regularly across all areas. We also pray for research into medical treatments, especially for those infected and that they might find things that are helpful. Father, this morning I would just like to pray for um, Lynn's, Lynn's uh, neighbour who's had a little boy and who's um, very sick, the baby's very sick. I just pray that you might heal this boy, that the medical advice may be advice that is really helpful. I'm just going to give us a moment's silence to pray for those people that we know who are in trouble and our own concerns. Father, we also pray for those who struggle with addiction. 
Whatever the cause of addiction, we ask that your spirit would pour into the chasm where addiction dwells. Release each person from the pain and shame that shadow each day. Some burdens can be lifted, can only be lifted in your strength. Replace the hopelessness with praise. And Father, I pray too for Jamie Lee Post as she settles into her new job. I pray that she might be welcomed, that she might quickly know how she can best use the gifts that she has for the sake of your honour and your glory. I pray that she might establish a good relationship with the kids and with the staff and that you might use her for your kingdom's sake. Almighty God, we worship you as we struggle through days of uncertainty because you are the living God who upholds us and comforts. May we hold on to the message that we have. We praise you as the ruler of all things. Lord, thank you that we have a wonderful hope and that to us you have given us the words of eternal life. Lord, continue to grow us and use us for your kingdom's sake. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Um, we did want to look back in the news and say um, thank you to all those who prayed for the Alpha Ministry. Uh, they had a fantastic time. And if you're involved in that in any way in helping uh, part of the leadership team or cooking meals, a very big thank you. Um, they had 55 guests who came over the eight days, eight uh, weeks. And uh, not all of them came every week. Some came just for one or two. But there were 55 different guests apart from the team. And uh, of those, 18 people filled in a response form to let people, uh, us know in terms of their, the impact the course had on them. Of those 18, I think there's 12, this is where I'm slightly, I uh, can't remember, I think 12 wanted to continue on in terms of finding out more about the Christian faith, and six of those uh, said that actually moved from a position of not uh, knowing Christ to actually committing their life to Christ. So that was great news, and if you can keep praying for them, that would be a great thing to do, uh, particularly those 12 who are continuing to do some follow-up in various ways. Uh, we are looking forward though, and uh, one of the key things is we've got our new children's minister with us, Jamie Post. Can I get you to welcome Jamie along? Now, just to give you a feel for things, um, we searched long and hard after Naomi finished up, and uh, we discovered Jamie, and she's just been finishing her theological studies, hence finishing halfway through the year, or starting halfway through the year, and so without saying anything more, just... Welcome to St Matthew's, Jamie. Tell us Thank a bit about you. yourself. Um, I am Jamie, or Jamie Lee, as uh, Andrew has introduced me as as well. Same person. Um, I grew up in Avalon with my family, who half of them still live up there, so quite known to uh, the beaches area. I love the beaches area. I love Manly. I love... Um, I'll tell Siri to be quiet, sorry. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I love uh, being back on the beaches. Um, I grew up in a family who also loved Jesus. Uh, my parents have been really influential in my life. Uh, they grew me up knowing Jesus um, and they grew me up knowing uh, that he loves me um, and he died for me and he rose again and that it is only through him that I am saved uh, that I am part of his family. And that good news is something that I really love sharing with kids and families in particular. And I love seeing them growing up in the faith just as I have grown up in the faith as well. Um, that's a little bit about me. Now, you've just finished theological study. So what, what have you done? Yeah, so I went to YouthWorks uh, for two years and then SNBC for one year. And I finished up with a, a Bachelor of Ministry. And what did you do at YouthWorks? YouthWorks was a two-year thing where I did a bunch of uh, studies um, and part of that is I was involved in a, a church, so St Andrews Roseville, and I did a, a student ministry MTS there and what they did is they paired it with kids ministry and so you learnt uh, theological things and actually got taught how do you teach this to kids, how do you teach this to young people and how do you grow them in Jesus at such a young age. Fantastic. Now, you're here. Uh, I think you've been on the job now. This is, you started on Monday. How are you feeling about being here at Manly at St Matthews? Yeah, I'm feeling really excited to be here. As Bruce and lots of people said, it's been a long time coming. I'm feeling really excited to finally be here and land here and uh, start uh, in 
being involved with the church here, um, calling Manly my home church now and calling this my family. And I'm also a little bit nervous. Uh, there's lots of you guys to learn and names and get to know you guys. And so I would love um, just prayer for being able to get to know you guys deeply um, and getting to know the kids deeply and the families deeply and connect, uh, creating great connections through uh, people. Fantastic. Well, look, we are glad you're here. What's a couple of things that people can be praying for you? Yeah, so one, the connections and just learning names. I'm not very great at names, and so please, uh, if I have met you, it's no offence to you or all, uh, please repeat your name to me a couple of times. Um, that will help me a lot as I repeat my name to you. Um, so, yeah, pray for just connecting and to uh, get to know you. Uh, you guys, um, the families, um, and just growing in the role. Uh, jumping from being full-time student to full-time ministry is quite a big jump. So just prayer for um, your energy as I work out what to um, put my time and energy into. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to pray for you right now. So let's all pray. Father, we do thank you that Jamie's here. And as she gets to know people, just help her to know them, uh, to remember names, and I pray that we would welcome her warmly so that she would feel a real part of this community. And uh, we pray that transition moving into the area, into the church would go smoothly. And just give her energy and wisdom as she begins her role here to lead the kids' ministry about what to put her efforts into straight away, what to think about for later. And uh, we pray use her in a great way as she works alongside Trish and helps build this ministry to our wonderful children, and we just pray your blessing on her. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll just mention, just in case you're wondering, Ellen, you might have seen around, she's been terrific. She basically took on a part-time uh, role short-term, and so she's uh, here for two weeks uh, to the end of her contract, and she finishes up next Sunday, and uh, there's a handover period, and Trish is going to stay on in a part-time role working alongside Jamie. So uh, that's kind of the plan going forward, and uh, we pray God's blessing is going to be with it. Anyway, thank you, thank you, Jamie, and a uh, very warm welcome to you, Mrs. Matthews. Over to you, Andrew. Our friends, we now get to sing a beautiful reflection on Psalm 23, the King of love, my shepherd is. Please stand and we'll sing.
Good morning. Uh, this morning's reading uh, is from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, sorry, chapter 10, verses 7 to 18. And uh, the page, I'm sorry, is 1075. Very good. I'll just give you a moment to find that. Apparently, Jesus was speaking to some Pharisees who hadn't quite understood what he was saying. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you as ever. If you could keep your Bibles open at John chapter 10, that would uh, help uh, me refer to that a little bit later on. Uh, right now, I'm going to pray and then we'll get right underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for your good news about you being a good shepherd. And we certainly need to hear that, so let us pay attention to it in the next little stretch. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You might have heard of something called broken window theory. In fact, there are two broken window theories. One is an economic theory that emerged from France in the 1850s, but the one I'm thinking of is about law and order, which came out of America in the 1980s. And the theory goes that if you leave broken windows in a rundown part of town, that low-level disorder leads to increased fear and social withdrawal from the residents, which in turn allows more serious crime to enter. So fix the windows fix the crime, which sounds good to the point where policing based on this broken window theory was celebrated as the cause of a giant decline in crime in New York City in the 1990s. Only problem was that crime in New York City started to decline several years before broken window policing started. And furthermore, crime rates in other cities declined that didn't use broken window policing. So this broken window idea sounds great, but turns out to be a dubious assumption. Now, the Australian census data that was recently released indicates a striking percentage of people in our country, uh, sorry, a shrinking percentage, I should say, of people in our country are signed up to established religion. And a growing percentage are nominating themselves as of no religion. And because of the stories that are told in many ways in our culture, there is an almost unnamed an unsubstantiated assumption that religion is bad for us. It's bad for us individually, it's bad for us as a society. Religion makes us feel guilty, it crushes our freedoms and expression, it's rooted in ancient folklore and mythology, it has been incriminated by history and disproved by science. It's harmful to gays, women and transgender people, it's old, white, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> old, white, American and male. It causes wars, condones slavery, and generally holds us back. It hinders rather than enables morality, and it just makes us feel miserable. Surely we would be better off without religion. 
My question is, is that true? Or is it just a dubious assumption? Well, that's what we're thinking about today. And as Andrew said, it is the first week in our series called Confronting Christianity. It is loosely based on a book of the same name by the brilliant Rebecca McLaughlin, worth a read or a listen to on audio book in which the author narrates her own work. Well, in that book, Rebecca McLaughlin tackles 12 questions that are typically posed of the Christian faith. We don't have time to do all 12, and we'll look at a couple that aren't in her book. But across this series, we're going to investigate these six questions on a Sunday. Are we better off without religion? Should we take the Bible literally? Is God homophobic? Would a loving God send people to hell? Is Christianity the only true religion? And does the Christian faith crush diversity? Important questions, aren't they? There are questions about suffering and science in Rebecca's book that we won't cover. And we'll cover an additional two topics in special midweek sessions that you'll hear about soon. But today we're thinking, are we better off without religion? Is that a valid assumption? And if not, why not? Well, I want to start today with uh, some surprising findings before we look at some possible counterintuitive explanations for this surprising finding. Now, the first surprising finding emerged from the data that we looked at two weeks ago when Bruce gave us a rundown of the state of Australian Christianity. You remember the headline news from the census results was that for the first time, less than half of Australians ticked the box to self-identify as Christians, okay? That decline in people ticking the Christian box was matched by an increase in people ticking the no-religion box, as you can see there. That was the headline news in the media. But you might remember that when we drilled into the numbers, we discovered that those results and the commentary around those results was dominated by people in the 50 to 64 age bracket. They were the least likely group to attend religious services regularly, and they also happen to be the group that runs corporations, leads governments, writes newspaper articles, and hogs the microphone. Not okay, Boomer. And when we drilled into the data, we discovered, uh, like happily, that a third of young adults attend a religious service once a month. So people, both older and younger than that 50 to 64 age bracket, were much more open to faith, even to Christian faith, even to church involvement, especially if they see Christians living an authentic Christian life, and also if churches refrain from making uninvited political commentary. So boomers among us, but actually every Christian, our job is to be as positive and as regular about church as we can, and to be as kind and authentically Christian as we can, and to talk about our faith rather than about our politics. Well, good luck with all that, hey? But really that's good news as far as I can tell. And, and I reckon it would be worth listening or re-listening to Bruce's message from a fortnight ago. But here's the thing, right? There's even more good news. In 2016, uh, the Harvard School of Public Health has a professor called Tyler Vanderweel, which I love that name. Doesn't it sound so American? Tyler Vanderweel. And uh, a journalist, John Siniff, they wrote an article for USA Today called Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. And Rebecca McLaughlin cites this in her book. And in the article, they outline the mental and physical health benefits that correlate with regular religious participation, which show that people who attend religious services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, are more self-controlled, and may even have a longer life, as going to church was shown to reduce mortality rates in America by over 20% across a 15-year period. Doesn't that make you happy? Now, they weren't saying that everything about religion was great because they're not idiots, but they were saying, surprisingly, compared to kind of the public commentary, that religious participation appears to be good for your health and good for your happiness. And this is acknowledged by secular psychologists of the highest order, such that Rebecca McLaughlin concludes in her book, if you turn this data on its head, you think about it in a different way, any trend towards secularization is a public health crisis. Isn't that fascinating? In fact, it's beyond so, uh, personal happiness, it's also a social good. 
And friends, you only have to think about the social benefit provided by Christian church and religious, religions more broadly in terms of schooling, in terms of charities, in terms of aged care, not to mention the plethora of other organisations that rely on volunteers for which religious people statistically volunteer at higher rates than their secular neighbours. I mean, if you, just think, if you took away church schools, church-based charities, church-provided aged care facilities, our society would implode. I mean, people would literally be dying in the streets. And this has been acknowledged by our Federal Minister for Charities, a fellow called Andrew Lee, who is an atheist, but he nevertheless argues for the promotion of religion as good for society in his book, Disconnected. Now, he looks like an affable chap, doesn't he? But in this photo, I think he it looks like he's forgotten something. Don't you reckon? <coughs> Where'd I park my car? I'm sure it was on this level. <laughs> Atheist guy who's an economist who argues that he doesn't believe in God, but he knows that churches are essential to keep society running. You see, friends, we think we are this tiny minority of people, vague, obscure, irrelevant, delicate and ailing. But the surprising truth seems to be the opposite. We're not as much of a minority as we're told, and our religious habits are as vital and healthy as ever. This, of course, does not mean the Christian faith is true, but you've got to admit it is a surprising finding, isn't it? So why is it the case, then, that religion is potentially good for you? And let's narrow it down, because I'm not as interested in religions per se. Uh, in Rebecca McLaughlin's book, she's more generous than I would naturally be in terms of the, the positive benefits she extends to all religions. Let's consider why the Christian faith could be good for you and why our culture might be better off with Christianity than without it. I have some possible counterintuitive explanations. The first of which is that what we think or what we are told is a good life in our culture might not actually be a good life. Now, if you think about it, our culture tends to emphasise wealth. It tends to prioritise convenience and comfort. And it places a high premium on the individual and individual freedom and choice. Wealth, comfort and individual choice are ideals in our culture. But they kind of contrast with the ideals of Christian faith. And you can visualise this difference in a comparison of Bob and Mary from Jonathan Haidt's 2006 book called The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. Jonathan Haidt's an atheist, by the way. But he compares these two people. Bob, 35 years old, white, attractive, athletic. He earns $100,000 per year, that's 2006, and lives in sunny Southern California. He's highly intellectual, he likes to read and go to museums. Mary, on the other hand, lives in snowy Buffalo, New York, and with her husband, together earns a combined income of only $40,000. She is 65 years old, she is black. In Jonathan Haidt's book, he describes her as plain in appearance. Now, I would not describe that lady as plain in appearance. She's got a lovely smile, she's got warm, friendly eyes, she's got funky earrings, okay? Work with me here, people, all right? 65 years old, black, plain appearance, and she's on dialysis for kidney problems. But she's sociable, and she's actively involved in her church. Now, for all money, Jonathan Haidt says, you would say Bob has a better life, wouldn't you? But statistically, this world-renowned atheist psychologist says a much better bet is that Mary has a happier life. Her network of relationships, many of which are grounded in her participation in church life, are coupled with a whole host of psychological goods that enable her to enjoy life more than her more privileged comparison. I guess in a way, what he found is that more money does not make you more happy, beyond a certain level, at which point money enables you to afford a basic level of security, more money does not buy you increased well-being. And studies and surveys as large and as prominent as the World Happiness Report essentially confirm what Jesus said some 2,000 years ago, that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Or what the Apostle Paul instructed a young minister in 1 Timothy, 
Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. It is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, our culture says you need more money to be happy. Our Bibles agree you need more. You need more God. You need more hope. You need more humility. You need more vital relationships for these things will bring us joy. A related factor is contentment. The gospel allows us to be truly content regardless of our situation, whether we're Bob in sunny California or Mary in freezing upstate New York. You know, in the same section I quoted above, the Apostle Paul wrote these delightfully light words. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. For godliness with contentment is great gain. Isn't it light? Or just as strikingly, he wrote these words to the Philippian Christians from jail. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Do you know our culture would love to be able to say those words? Would love it. And yet we tremble with panic at the thought of being without. But the Christian can draw upon gospel resources and the hope of an unimaginably glorious eternity to be content with what we have right here and now. And we can further add to our contentment gratitude, giving thanks in all circumstances, rejoicing in the Lord always. We can add to our contentment and gratitude generosity, knowing that it's more blessed to give than to receive. The Christian faith gives us a better idea about contentment, gratitude, generosity than our envious, greedy, anxious and often tight-fisted culture does. The Christian faith also encourages self-denial and self-control and perseverance, which turn out to be key indicators of life success. They're very unsexy qualities, aren't they? The ability to say no for now, or the ability to say no forever, and that capacity to wait, and the capability to just press on when things get mundane or difficult. The, the character-building traits of not always looking for easy outs or easy roads. Now, I'm not saying that Christians should just always choose the more difficult of two options, regardless of the situations before them. But I am saying our faith encourages us to go the distance. It urges us to deny ourselves to follow another. It instructs us to add to our Bible knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and so on. And as it turns out, these very qualities we embody as we seek to follow the Lord Jesus through all the ups and downs of life, through hardships and persecutions, appear also to be indicators of human flourishing across many other aspects of life. Professors Angela Duckworth and James Gross, they, they wrote a study called Self-Control and Grit. And it found that perseverance and self-control are predictors of a person's success even more than social intelligence, emotional intelligence, IQ, or good looks. Haven't we got it going for ourselves, eh? Certainly, the Christian faith encourages us to think beyond ourselves. Uh, it also encourages us or reminds us that we are part of a community. And in fact, we are connected to a bigger story than us as individuals. July. July means I watch the Tour de France every night. It's so good. And uh, this year I noticed the Tour de France travelled through Dunkirk in northern France. And if you know the World War II story of Dunkirk, or you've seen the, the recent film, you'd know that over 400,000 British, French and Belgian troops were cut off and surrounded by the German military in the harbour of Dunkirk in May 1940. The only way to get these troops out was by sea. And so the Royal Navy sent in ships to rescue the men. 
But it was such an emergency that the call was put out for boat owners of all descriptions to join the rescue mission. And so between May 26 and June 4, 850 private boats sailed from Ramsgate in England to Dunkirk and back to ferry the soldiers from certain death. And many of them were fishing boats, tugboats, barges, pleasure crafts, sailed by civilian owners. That more than 100 of these little ships of Dunkirk were sunk by German aircraft is an indication of the risk that was attached to them playing their tiny part. Why were they so enthusiastic to get involved? Makes you wonder. But it's obvious, isn't it? They were part of a bigger picture, a tiny detail in a much bigger story. And humans have always found meaning and purpose in playing a, a small part in a story much bigger than themselves. Now, the Christian faith invites that. The sheer volume of one another commands is just one clue that each Christian is part of a bigger picture. And that's a powerful antidote to isolation and loneliness, which is the real dark side of our culture's emphasis on personal choice and individual freedom. That we need to consider others as better than ourselves, putting the interests of others before our own, forgiving one another, apologising to one another, it's a marker of what we hope our community will be like. And it's better than, than our culture's way of blaming one another and cancelling one another out and holding on to grudges. It's much more than just being a member of a cricket team or a community choir, although of course those things are good in themselves. The Christian faith's answer to consumerism and materialism, our aspirations about contentment, and gratitude and generosity and the nature of our common life together are, are all possible counterintuitive explanations for this data, which suggests that religion is good for us after all, both personally and as a society. But you know, in the first chapter of this book, Rebecca McLaughlin doesn't arrive at what I think is the ultimate reason for why the Christian faith is good for you and good for our society. I mean, she gets there later, so don't worry. But in her generosity towards other religions, she doesn't get the chance to say what is best about the Christian faith. It's not just that we're content and generous and forgiving and self-controlled and we persevere, <laughs> assuming that we are. It's not even that we're part of a bigger story. It's the nature of that story itself, isn't it? You see, other religions, they tend to emphasise what we do for God whether that's our private and personal morality, whether it's good works within the community, whether it's religious rituals and duties. And that's just as true of some branches of Catholicism and Anglicanism as it is of Hinduism and Judaism and Islam. But authentic biblical Christianity, it's about what God has done for us. It's not what we do for him. It's the story of a God who so loved his people, his wayward little flock of sheep, that he left the splendid privileges of his heavenly abode and joined them as a human being. One of them, Jesus Christ, a shepherd who said, follow me. I'm like a gate that you enter through which you can be saved. I'm a good shepherd who only has your best interests at heart. Little sheep, your world is mistaken about what a good life is like. Listen to my voice and follow me. I have come to give life and life to the full. And do you know what we offer in return? Nah. Nah. Then most remarkably of all, the good shepherd who brings life to the full says this, I will lay down my life for you. Have a look, John 10 verse 14. I know my sheep and they know me. Verse 15, I lay down my life for my sheep. Verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. The reason why we're not better off without the Christian faith is not just because it drags us into a bigger story, it's the nature of the story itself. One in which God looks at us bedraggled sheep, weighed down by the concerns of life, not the least of which are our own sins and shortcomings, and says, I care for you. 
I care enough to come down to you. I care enough to walk among you. I care enough to walk with you, leading and shepherding you. But ultimately, I care enough to die for you, laying down my life of my own accord. And it's simply because he cares for us, just because he loves us. Not because we're promising, but just because he freely does. Now, Rebecca McLaughlin, I think she has done a, um, a wonderful job in pulling together this compelling book, Confronting Christianity, um, well worth a read or a listen. And I trust that her findings about religion in general are a real encouraging surprise. They just give us a bit of a confidence boost, you know. We're not as small or as silly as we sometimes feel or are told. And I further trust that some of these counterintuitive reasons we've thought about today just give you joy without pride and they motivate us towards loving service of others. We can take heart, I mean, without getting ahead of ourselves. Definitely can't get proud because it's not like we always live up to those ideals. But as I've thought about things this week, I really hope that it's not just that we're part of a bigger story, Dunkirk style, that lightens and brightens our hearts. I want it to be the nature of that story itself that fills your heart, your spirit with joy, that you and I, so often resembling wayward sheep with so little to bring before an infinite God, would be so important to him and so loved by him that he would come down to us to shepherd and guide us, to live among us and then die for us because he cares for us just so. Are we better off without religion? Rebecca McLaughlin makes a powerful argument that we're not. She says that's a dubious assumption. But are we better off without Jesus? Well, in the words of a sheep, nah, nah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we, uh, <laughs> we often feel like we're, we're a small group, uh, silly and irrelevant. At least that's the way our culture often portrays us. And yet surprisingly we've discovered today that there are reasons for feeling really positive about religion in general and the Christian faith in particular. Help us to live up to its ideals, uh, not only so we can experience those blessings but be a great witness to the watching world. But really we're captivated by the story of the gospel in which you come down to us in the person of Jesus, living among us, guiding us, dying for us because you love us. May this bring us the greatest joy. In Jesus' name, amen.
please take your seats. And I'll just check whether everybody has one of our little communion packs. Raise your hand if you need one. Charles needs one down the front here, Chris. And someone up the back, is that Tony up there? No, it's Chris as well. Uh, Charles down the front, did you get one? Thanks, Deb. And just while they're getting organised, maybe you'd like to take the, uh, the plastic top off, off yours. Mine's fairly determined there. And then the foil as well. Well, friends, what a disaster it would be if our world lost the message of Jesus, uh, the good shepherd who died for us. Uh, I'm just in the middle of quite a number of funerals uh, here at St. Matthew's. A number have been for members of the congregation, uh, but quite a number of others have been for people in the wider community who've come to St. Matthew's asking for a funeral. And uh, not all of the people who come asking for them uh, really express a strong faith in God. But as we talk about what kind of Bible readings that might, uh, might work for them, I often suggest Psalm 23, and we've sung the content of Psalm 23 this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. And again and again, uh, people recognise something beautiful in that sense that King David had 3,000 years ago, that God is there, that he is our great shepherd. What a, what a tragedy it would be if our world lost that sense of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. And what we do pretty much every second week here is quite deliberately focus our attention on that point at which our good shepherd died for us, which he gave his life for us, the silly and, and worse, foolish and sinful sheep. Now that's what we're doing as we share together in the Lord's Supper this morning. Now here's how the scriptures describe what happened on that night when Jesus was betrayed. It says, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, then gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way after the meal, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And friends, the answers that our world are coming up with is you just have to become comfortable with who you are. Don't think badly of yourself. Learn to live with your own skin. Uh, there's so much more freedom, though, when we recognise that inside us there is darkness and it expresses itself in all sorts of ways. Uh, that's why Jesus had to go to the cross, because of the sin that dwells within us. And so one, in 1 John, it says, uh, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's actually good news that the bad news for us is so bad. The good news of Christ dying for us is really good news. So would you join me as we pray this prayer of confession, knowing that God will hear us because of Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we've often gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And here's the good news, also from 1 John. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So before we share in this bread and in this cup, I'll lead us in a further prayer. We thank you, our Father, that in your love and mercy, you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our salvation. By this offering of himself, once and for all time, Jesus made a full, 
perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and commanded us to continue a remembrance of his precious death until his coming again. Hear us, merciful Father, and grant that we who receive these gifts of your creation, this bread and this wine, according to our Saviour's command, in remembrance of his suffering and death, may be partakers of his body and blood. Now, brothers and sisters, let's take and eat this bread in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. And let's drink from this cup in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for us and be thankful. Would you join me in this prayer of thanksgiving and dedication? Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your grace, grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us in this hope that we have grasped so we and all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name. Amen. I'm going to lead us. For those of you who know us, please join me in the words of the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Well, friends, that closes the formal part of our gathering. We've got some people heading out to set up some morning tea for us. Please join us if you're able. Otherwise, I'm going to try and get to the back there before you leave. I'd love to have a chance to say goodbye to you.